and welcome to the Brexit Central podcast. Joining me today is Matthew Elliott, the editor-at-large at Brexit Central and the former CEO of Vote Leave. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks, David. So I just thought we could start by talking a little bit about your scepticism and kind of how you got involved. So you ended up being CEO of Vote Leave, yeah. um, the one of the most successful campaigns we've had in the last 100 years. Were you always a Eurosceptic? I think it depends on how you um, define Eurosceptic. Um, I wasn't always for leave. Um, so, for example, when um, I set up Business for Britain back in 2013, um, BFB stood for change or go. That was our slogan. So we were saying if David Cameron can get a change from the renegotiation, we'll back that. Um, but otherwise, we should leave. Um, so I was a sort of change or go man there. But what became clear after the 2015 general election was that um, he wasn't going to get any changes because uh, very soon afterwards, about four weeks afterwards, he ruled out any form of treaty change, which basically meant that all of the objectives which he talked about in the Bloomberg speech were impossible to achieve. It wasn't going to work out. So it's really important to start thinking about how to run and win a Leave campaign. So what were you asking for then in Change or Go? In Change or Go, you know, lots of the things which David Cameron talked about in his Bloomberg speech um, taking powers back to the member states was a key one. Um, he talked about a bigger emphasis on um, uh, trade deals from the EU, reinforcing the role of member state parliaments. Um, there were four or five things which all added up to quite a credible vision of an EU which was going to decentralise power back to the member states of the EU. And it was a big ask, but had he managed to persuade the EU to reform in that way, um, and make it return to being an EU of member states and nation states, if you like, rather, um, that would have been a good thing, and I could have backed that, and that would have been great. Um, the fact was that once treaty change was ruled out, um, that was never going to happen. And in fact, as we saw in February 2016, when he came back with his final deal, it was basically tinkering. There was basically zero change whatsoever in our relationship with the EU going forward. Did you ever believe, though, that he was going to come back with something you'd be happy with? I think there's always a chance. Um, I think, you know, looking back, I wonder whether um, Angela Merkel and her colleagues now think they should have given the UK more. Uh, so, for example, um, after the uh, Cameron's renegotiation, very soon afterwards, the EU changed its rules on uh, implicitly on uh, freedom of movement. You know, lots of different countries, um, you know, implicitly brought in you know, types of emergency break, if you like, on freedom of movement. The very sort of thing that David Cameron was trying to get in the renegotiation, but failed to get. So I wonder if, looking back, Angela Merkel and her colleagues now think that was a mistake. Now, that wouldn't have been enough for me. That clearly is only one matter, and for me, not the most important matter in the whole neg renegotiation. But um, I think that there was a possibility the EU could have responded properly. But I think the key point was, they never took the threat of a referendum and the possibility of a leave vote seriously. I think their intelligence um, in the UK was that Britain would never vote to leave. Therefore, why give the UK anything in the renegotiation? Looking at your upbringing, uh, at what point did you start thinking seriously about the EU? Because you've obviously set up a lot of campaigns in your career. Well, it's funny. I, I was a chorister when I was um, young, and um, I have very strong recollections of being, um, uh, you know, twelve or thirteen, still a chorister. Uh, and that was about the time when uh, Maastricht was going through. And I remember 
um, our choir master, you know, talking about Maastricht and how terrible it was, and some of the uh, gentlemen who were part of the choir also complaining about it. So I have strong memories, even back then, of people talking about the EU and how it was uh, becoming more political and um, you know, grabbing power from the member states. So I remember that. Um, then once I got to um, university in uh, 1997, um, uh, I remember there'd been lots of debates about um, the euro and whether or not um, you know, Britain should join the, uh, the eurozone. And um, it was about that time that I started um, interning for Bill Cash at the European Foundation uh, in about 1998, I think. And of course, the big issue then was should Britain join the uh, euro? So I was very much on the side that we shouldn't. Um, uh, so really, it was the opposition to the single currency that was my first taste actively in terms of Eurosceptic campaigning. And then soon afterwards, I set up the uh, Taxpayers' Alliance. So um, really, the sort of tax and spend arguments became more important at that point. And we didn't do that much on the EU, but slowly as we developed, of course, a significant area of government waste was how the EU was spending and wasting our money. And because, of course, the EU is so far from the um, uh, oversight and accountability of taxpayers and voters, uh, there's a lot more waste going on there than there is at a domestic level. Mm. Um, so it was a ripe area for us to look at uh, in great detail, and we did quite a lot of work on that. But it was really um, after uh, the AV referendum, um, when I was thinking about what to do next, where it's becoming clear that the EU is bubbling up as a significant issue, um, people first started talking seriously about a referendum, uh, first started talking seriously about uh, Britain leaving if there weren't any changes. And I could see this as being the next big campaign. So I started thinking about you know, what group could best, um, you know, what would be the most useful group to set up at that point. And that was really the origin of setting up um, Business for Britain. So is your, um, your approach seems to be to set something up um, in order to achieve something, yeah. a, a specific thing. So... Um, at the point when you thought um, this is bubbling up and this could become a real issue, um, your instinct wasn't to join something that was pre-existing. So your instinct wasn't to join UKIP or to join the Bruges Group. No. So in the um, late 90s, early 2000s, um, I'd been um, a huge admirer of the Business for Sterling campaign, the uh, business group who were uh, opposed to uh, Britain joining the Euro uh, which developed into the No Euro uh, campaign. I really liked the uh, professionalism and ca campaigning verve uh, and non-partisanship they brought to the debate. And I picked up on a lot of those ideas when setting up the um, Taxpayers' Alliance. But when I was sort of surveying the field in um, 2012 and looking at the niche that needed filling, there wasn't a business voice at the time. So business for Sterling had long gone. Uh, there wasn't really a business group representing... Uh, business leaders who wanted to see a change in our relationship with the EU. And the other key point was there wasn't um, a credible um, non-UKIP-based organisation. And one of my beliefs was that if we were to win a referendum, um, if it was going to come to that, there were two key things that needed to happen. Um, first point, it could only be won by having a non-UKIP base that could basically appeal to the mainstream, to the swing voters in the referendum debate, first point. And secondly, uh, we needed to at least have a score draw on the economic argument. And um, yeah, I recognise that people really look to business leaders to um, give them advice on economic matters and what would be good or bad for the economy. 
And if it was just the likes of the CBI and the IOD and the British Chamber of Commerce um, talking about the EU, then it would be a constant sort of pro-European Remain theme. And I knew from you know, talking with business leaders, there was a significant group of business leaders out there who weren't officially organised, who had no representation at the national level, but who um, wanted to see that change in our relationship with the EU and very much stood behind the uh, change or go message. So that was the niche which I filled by setting up Business of Britain. And so at this point, are you in charge of the Taxpayers Alliance? So after the um, AV referendum, um, I'm based at the Taxpayers Alliance. I'm still very much involved in it. Um, I can never quite remember the precise timings, but I think that um, Matt Sinclair had taken over by, as um, chief executive at that point to do a great job with the organisation. Uh, I was based there working out my uh, next move at that point. Uh, so I was still associated with the TPA and still you know, working from there, but really looking for my next campaign. So the No to AV campaign, you sure. um, you chaired that. You seem to change the change the um, the nature of the debate with that. You seem to focus on how much this is going to cost. Yeah. Do you think that um, that was a lesson you learned? Well, when I um, took on that campaign in the summer of um, 2010, um, public opinion was um, two to one in favour of changing Britain's voting system. So. Really, we needed to work out how to um, you know, reverse that public opinion. And um, I knew that basically concentrating on you know, obscure academic debates about the nature of different voting systems, um, frankly, wouldn't cut ice and wouldn't cut through with people. And what wasn't really of interest to voters wasn't what they're looking for. So we did a big piece of market research. I worked with um, Lyndon Crosby on that. To, to work out you know, the sort of arguments that would change people's minds. And, um, of course, what people were concerned about at the time, because this was shortly after the financial crisis, um, the government was going through its period of um, austerity, lots of concern about public spending and how to cut public spending and what was being spent on at the time. So the whole idea of spending a um, you know, quarter of a billion pounds um, changing our voting system seemed like a really weird and waste of money when other things were being um, cut back or denied uh, taxpayers' money. So that was clearly a theme to uh, think about, and we tested it thoroughly, and it worked really well. So one of our key messages was, why spend the money on this? You know, why spend the money on changing Britain's voting system when it could be spent on things like the NHS? And of course, that's a theme which we then uh, took through to the Vote Leave campaign. But... So that was the message that resonated with people, and it was one that you, you of course, believed in. But ultimately, I'm sure your reasons for not wanting to change our voting system were, were more than economic. They so were. What's your kind of political philosophy that was behind that? So the, I think there are two things. Um, first of all, this is a camp theme we actually ran towards the end of the campaign, uh, the whole point about one person, one vote. And we felt that with AV, it almost gave people more than one vote. But the second one was the... F point about government accountability. Of course, first past the post tends to produce um, majority governments. Now, of course, we haven't got a majority government at the moment, and we didn't have one between 2010 and 2015, but it tends to, on, on balance, produce governments with a majority in the House of Commons. And when you have that situation, um, when it comes to the following election, they have nowhere to hide. So basically, they, they are then judged on have they implemented the manifesto, have they governed the country well? 
um, you know, have they've done a good job in government, and they have nobody else to blame. They can't say, oh, we weren't allowed to do something, or our coalition partner didn't allow it, or we would have loved to have done that, but you know, the nasty coalition partner didn't allow us. So I felt that under AV, uh, which is a form of proportional representation, it was a slippy slope to move into a full PR-based system where you'd always have coalition governments, that brings in less accountability. So I'd much rather have a system which basically goes from having a majority Conservative government to a majority Labour government, both of which can be judged at the following election on how well they've done. And also the key thing about No to AV as well was, again, that was... Um, a cross-party campaign. I think when we set it up, um, many people in the Conservative Party thought it would just be Conservatives because um, the Labour Party in their leadership election that brought Ed Miliband as leader, all of the leadership contenders had been uh, for changing the voting system. So people had always written off the Labour Party, but in fact, by the end of the campaign, two-thirds of Labour MPs and peers were backing no, no to AV and having that strong cross-party dimension, I think, was really important to attract Labour voters. So for me, No to AV provided a template for having that cross-party um, situation, also allowing the Labour Party to take a lead, because in some ways the Labour vote was the swing vote there. So similarly with Vote Leave, um, giving a prominent place to uh, people like Gisela Stewart, who was the chairman in the final phase of the campaign, or having people like Graham Strigger on the board, or you know people like Kate Hoey played a really important role as well in the referendum. That was really important to us to send that signal out to Labour voters that uh, they could vote Leave. Who would you say your political heroes are? Oh, that's a great question. I think in terms of the the Prime Minister I most admire of all time. For me, being a big um, a sort of free marketeer, um, what Margaret Thatcher did in the 1980s was hugely important. You know, the UK economy was going down the Swanee in the 1970s. Uh, we were called the um, sick man of Europe. Um, you know, economic growth had collapsed. You know, things were terrible there. You know, the trade unions were rife. It was really impossible to do business. Investment was drying up. Unemployment was sky high. So the economy was in a terrible sh shape. And what she managed to do in terms of turning it around, um, I really admire. Now, um, I'm not saying that we should you know, repeat the 1980s now or um, you know, uh, it always you know, provides the inspiration for policies going forward. But in terms of a prime minister who uh, faced the problem, had a clear diagnosis of the problem and had some clear solutions for it, and then had the strength and determination to drive those through, um, I really admire what she did then. If you had to choose between having a country that was prosperous and had embraced the free market, um, but one that was in the European Union, or a country that was a, a socialist, Venezuela-style socialism, but had control <laughs> of national sovereignty, which would you pick? <laughs> That's a tough choice. Um, it's interesting. This, of course, came up during the um, referendum, because, of course, Vote Leave was a um, coalition uh, of people from many parties and people of no party whatsoever. And, you know, at the heart of it, um, the only way to have that coalition in place was to say that we all believe that Parliament should be sovereign and decisions should be made in the um, House of Commons. And, you know, there's some really good colleagues from uh, the Labour Party and who set up, of course, uh, Labour Leave. And I remember them publishing a pamphlet about how um, you can't renationalise the railways if you're still in the EU. And of course, that appealed to their supporters and their base and their voters. And that's really important. Now, as a free marketeer, 
I'd hate us to renationalise the railways, but what I recognise is if you're bringing powers back to Parliament, then, of course, if the electorate vote for a government that does that, you've got to respect that decision. So at the end of the day, for me, um, having Parliament as sovereign and taking back control, do that phrase, that's the most important thing. Mm. So just thinking about um, when you set up uh, Business for Britain and when it eventually turned into Vote Leave, um, how much regard did you pay to the kind of historical precedents? So what were you, did you look at um, things that had happened in the past before you set it up? Um, I've talked already about how um, uh, Business for Stirling was a huge inspiration mm. for the um, campaign. That was really important. Um, I've talked a bit about um, No to AV as well and how the particularly the cost point was um, crucial there. So was this all about doing research and looking at what things worked and doing your marketing and having focus groups and working out what would work? Was any of this political instinct? Was any of this just, we don't know if this will work, we just feel like it's going to work? I think there's always an element of um, political instinct. So of course you're um, honing things down. Um, when you're testing messages in market research or testing messages in, messages in focus groups, of course, you naturally hone things down from a wider amount. So there's an amount of instinct involved in that. But we were very careful to um, test things. Indeed, we did a big piece of market research um, after the 2014 um, European elections to, that was Dominic and myself, to, to work out you know, why the country had voted so strongly UKIP. That was the first one where UKIP came top. And we're sort of trying to work out the motivations of voters and where the Eurosceptics were and things like that. So, um, you know, always there's an element of you need to test things. It's really important. I saw that in Vote Leave and also um, Note AV. But, of course, it's also instinct as well. There's also, um, I think it's worth going back to you know, academic theory as well. You know, one of the things I learned at the uh, London School of Economics, where I did my uh, bachelor's degree, we did a lot on uh, public choice theory. And uh, one of my favourite political scientists was um, Anthony Downs, who um, had his theory called the medium, uh, median voter theorem. The idea that if you're in a two-party race, as you have uh, presidential campaigns in the States, uh, usually two-party races, um, there is the candidate that gets the median voter who wins the race. So when I was applying that to a referendum, which of course is a two-party race in a sense, it's a yes or no question, um, you're also thinking about how can you win over that swing voter. And what we knew about the um, EU debate was that that sort of central third of voters who were the swing voters, their um, hearts said to them they wanted to vote leave, but um, their heads had concerns particularly about the um, economic consequences of voting leave. So, of course, it's really important for us to push forward our business leaders who reassured them about the um, economic case and the business case for voting leave. But also we knew from that um, central um, swing voter uh, grouping that they didn't want to feel they were voting UKIP by voting leave. So pushing forward politicians like um, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and Gisela Stewart um, was really important to show them that there, were, that there were politicians in both the Conservative and Labour Party and other parties who voted, wanted to vote Leave rather than just UKIP. The kind of structure of Vote Leave, um, I've spoken to um, Oliver Lewis, yeah. um, I did a podcast with him, and he said that the, um, the structure of Vote Leave was quite important. He said that you, you trusted the, the senior team you had around them and you let them get on with things and you trusted them to make good decisions. Was that a conscious decision? to not micromanage people or was that just because you were so busy you just had to do that? Um, 
a conscious decision. Um, that was the best. Best. Uh, that's how to get the best out of people by not constantly micromanaging, by you know appointing smart people and letting them get on with it. Uh, but of course, all the time, you know, gathering data to sort of test if things are working. That's really important. I'd say another key important thing about the structure of the campaign was the importance of the um, supporter groups that we had. Now, of course, um, Business of Britain was part of, part of Vote Leave, and that was, of course, it grew out of it. But, of course, we had um, groups like Liberal Leave and um, Vapours for Britain and Kiwis for Britain and Out and Proud, um, a whole host of these groups out there which are part of the sort of Vote Leave family, if you like. And what was important about that was that they appealed to different segments of the population and different groups. And I think that was another important structural thing that we did, that people who identified with a certain demographic group or social group could feel they could be part of the Votely family. And did you, um, did you, were you influenced at all by the, the Obama campaign? Obama did this, and he, um, women for Obama and um, Hispanics for Obama. Was any of that... Um, I was very much so. Um, in the, uh, let me get the years right. So in 2012, uh, when Obama ran for re-election, um, I went over there in the September with um, a group of um, six formers. So a group of academies had arranged um, a trip for about um, uh, 14 or 15 six formers to go over there and actually sort of see the presidential campaign you know, up close and personal. And they invited me along as um, an advisor and as a mentor and someone to explain what was going on to people. And um, I've still got two of the posters from that campaign. Um, I think one is uh, Hispanics for Obama and the other one is uh, Republicans for Obama. And the uh, the kids and their teachers signed them with messages and that sort of thing. But that whole idea for Obama translated into business for Britain and vapors for Britain, all the other groups, students for Britain, all those groups. So yes, I very much took inspiration from that campaign. The Remain campaign tried, in some sense, to to take on the kind of territory of patriotism. So it was um, Britain stronger in Europe. They used the British flag quite a lot. Um, I never particularly liked their logo. I thought it was always slightly amateurish, but I don't think that's the thing that lost the campaign for them. Sort of thinking back to the campaign about what they could have done differently. I mean, obviously they had a huge uh, emphasis on the economic debate, which sort of made sense because that's what swing voters were concerned about. Um, it's been written a lot about how having such specific figures, um, I can't remember the precise figure, but it was something like they were saying that you know, by 2025, um, the average household will be £12,365.25 pence worse off. Uh, having such a specific figure didn't really help their case, because of course people doubted that. I think they also um, uh, were less nimble than we were. Of course, they were made up of the uh, major parties, plus the CBI, plus the trade unions, plus uh, the government machine, and uh, I think decision-making was very slow there, so we were much more nimble, which really helped. I think they also um, held back from being overly negative about um, people on the Leave side. This is more from reading some of the books after the event, uh, but it seems like um, Will Straw and Lucy Thomas and some of the people involved wanted to go much more negative on the Leave side and um, sort of try and suggest that um, you know, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove were no better than Nigel Farage and his chums. Of course, they never went down that route in a big way, I think, because um, David Cameron always had in the back of his mind, um, A, the assumption that he was going to win, um, and B, the recognition that after his victory for Remain, 
um, he'd have to bring the Conservative Party back together. So he never went to the ultimate degree to sort of take out the Leave campaign. So I think looking back, um, having spoken to them, I know a lot of people in the Rain campaign felt their hands were tied on that front. And had they been allowed to be unleashed and really go for the Leave campaign, that perhaps could have made a difference. But that said, I think it's also worth, always worth recognising that um, it's not all down to the campaign. Um, there are longer term trends at play here. Um, there are longer term frustrations with the EU, uh, resentments at um, uh, the fact that we haven't been consulted in referendums on different treaties that have come in, um, frustration about the, um, the lies about migration, for example, when Tony Blair said that only a few thousand people would come to the UK after Eastwood expansion and ended up being 2.5 million. They felt politicians lied to them on that. Um, of course, frustration about the wastes of money. Uh, frustration that uh, control should be brought back to the UK and too much power gone to the EU, all these different trends, they were the big themes about why the country voted leave rather than the micro-decision on the campaign. So do you think if you and Dominic Cummings had been running the Remain campaign, do you think you could have won it? Yes. You think you could have done? So what would you have done differently? I think probably stronger attacks, uh, a more focused message, uh, one that resonated with people and uh, a more nimble operation. But it did resonate with um, the core Remain voter because the core Remain voter, from what I can tell, does respect the CBI and does respect the OECD and does respect these big business lobbying groups. But from what you've said, it seems like they needed to do more than that and they needed to capture the middle ground. You can't just win on your core vote in these situations. And I think there seems to be a lot of complacency on the side of the uh, Remain campaign. They should have done more to win over the swing voters. Do you see Corbyn as as being um, a kind of foot soldier of vote leave? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think it's certainly worth saying that um, by the end of the campaign, there was still a confusion amongst um, Labour voters about where the Labour Party as an institution stood in the referendum. And it's interesting that uh, if you do if you in the polling that was done. Um, People were seeing as much of um, Gisela Stewart and Kate Hoey and politicians like that as they were of um, Jeremy Corbyn and his colleagues in the shadow cabinet. So I think it's true to say that um, uh, Labour didn't exactly put as much into the fight as the Conservative Party did or the Liberal Democrats did. I think that's true to say. Yes, that probably helped. Um, and you've done a little bit of work... Um after you finish the Vote Leave campaign, on kind of wider, um, longer historical um, looks at campaigns in general um, and how to bring about change. Where do you think um, Brexit will sit within that kind of pantheon? What do you, what do you compare Brexit to? I, Brexit is, um, you know, it's a huge shift in um, public policy in the UK. And it's something which happened not in the um, six months leading up to the referendum, um, but in really um, you know, three decades of campaigning leading up to that, really starting with the um, Bruges speech and going forward, it was slowly built up um, over time. And um, in terms of the operations, the operational side and how it came about, I think it's worth looking back at things like the um, change in the, the abolition of the Corn Laws, for example. That's a really good example, where, again, it was a case where it was built up over a long period of time, uh, you had the um, anti-Corn Law League as the, the grassroots operation, if you like, sort of driving it and 
you know, gathering people across the country in favour of abortion recall laws. You had um, Cobden and Bright as the um, the organisers outside of Parliament and the thinkers and people providing the um, intellectual weight for it and the um, organising things at the uh, the grass tops level, if you like. Um, then, of course, you had Robert Peel as Prime Minister who uh, made the actual change when it happened. So, in a sense, the org- when, you, when you've got a situation with the Corn Laws, when you had the right politician in place, Robert Peel, when you had the right um, intellectual leadership in place in Governor Bright, and when you had the right grassroots operation in place in the Anti-Corn Law League, they were able to work together to get that policy change. And I think if you look at the at the uh, Leave campaign, if you look back over those decades leading up to the vote, you identify how there were the right politicians who came together, how there was the intellectual leadership from different groups, you know, like Business of Britain, and how you had the right grassroots campaign in Vote Leave at the right point. So all of these things added up to the victory. Robert Peel was a, was the Prime Minister who was fiercely against um, the repeal of the Corn Laws, and yet uh, managed to be persuaded to change his mind and managed to be persuaded to um, repeal the Corn Laws. Do you see any parallels with Theresa May? Um, I think Theresa May has um, recognised the result of the referendum. Um, I think that she is you know, doing her best to you know, get a good deal for the UK. Um, obviously, her situation hasn't been helped by the um, general election and the fact that she lost her uh, majority. Uh, that's really been a big complication for things. Um, I'm one of these people, though, who is actually quite optimistic. That's my natural demeanour. And I think there will be a deal. And, of course, I'm also looking forward to the, um, in a sense, the next phase of the negotiations, where we actually sort of work out the free trade agreement uh, between the UK and the um, EU. And I think more sort of time and thought needs to be put into that to make sure that in that next phase, we get the deal we deserve. Matthew Elliott, thank you very much. Thank you.